Good morning. If you got your Bibles, go to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. Yep. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 1. Let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, God, we thank you. We praise you. Help us to honor you with our lives, God. Help us to worship you with all of our hearts. Truly speak, God. Truly give us true understanding of what it is that you declare, who it is that you are, Father God, and how it is that we're supposed to respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the book of Genesis, we're going to read a little bit. And our topic for today, we've been talking about the word of God and the revelation and the inspiration that God has put forth through his spirit. And we're going to begin to transition a little bit into particular things in that revelation and that inspiration that God has given. And the first thing we're going to talk about in this is part of the foundation of truly understanding life as we desire it to be and one of the most haunting questions that exists for decades and for eons and ages throughout all philosophy and psychology and so on and so forth is what is the purpose of man what is our destiny what are we here for when it comes to our meaning our purpose our whole existence this is one of the biggest questions that we have And if you actually think about it, a lot of our quote-unquote political debates, they skirt around this one question, what does it mean to be human? And when we're talking about abortion, they they tell you, and when they do all this debating about when does life begin and so on and so forth, but you never hear anybody talk about what does it mean to be a human? They tell you that a fetus is not a human, but they don't tell you what a human is. And there's this lack of understanding of what does it mean to be human? What gives life value? What it is that makes us us? And why it is that we are the way that we are? And these are the things we're going to begin to focus on. And what we're going to do is take this foundational chapter. These first 11 chapters in the book of the Bible is the bedrock for all the rest of the revelation. You cannot truly understand the history of man and our existence on this planet Unless you understand these first 11 chapters of Genesis. Nothing else in all of history makes sense unless this is true. And we're going to take these first couple chapters to try to understand what it is that God made when he made you. So let's pick up. We're going to read a little bit to try to give you the full context. It says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And in the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. And let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and in the evening and in the morning were the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called the he seas. And God saw that it was good. 
And God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herb yield and seed and the fruit tree yield and fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yield and seed after his kind and the tree yield and fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And in the evening and in the morning were the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. And he made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creatures that have life and fowl that it may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great wells and every living creature that moveth was the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let fowl multiply in the earth in the evening and the morning or the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after his kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts upon the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after his kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Gonna pause right there. This is the history of creation. And the reason I wanted to read the whole thing is to sort of try to get your mind into the flow of what God was doing when he was created. Because that's one of the only ways you can truly understand the dignity that that we were endowed with. As you see, there's a pattern to the creation of God. God creates, he calls something forth. Then he names it. Then he gives it a task. If you watch the pattern in each thing, he calls it forth. Then he names it. Then he gives it a task. So in the mind of God, a part of creation is function. Because he don't just show that the creation of things and leave them in and of themselves. Everything that is displays that he created, he separates it, gives it a name, then he gives it a task. He connect the light with the thing he called day. And it began to differentiate between day and night. That was the job of the light to bring this separation and we use it as a marker of time. Then he brought forth this thing he called the firmament. And its job was to separate the waters above before the waters below. Then he called it heaven. So everything he brought forth, he put function in the purpose of his creation. So if you understand the creation of God and understand the way that we got intrinsic in our creation is our function. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? Everything that God created, he put a function to it as well as named it. And that's how it exists 
from that point on. And that's how we know whether or not it's good or it's bad based on its operating in the function that God created it to operate it in. And he did the same thing when he made man. He brought man forth. He named it. Then he gave it a function to have dominion. Going to get into that part later. But another thing I want to point out is that you see in the creation, as the thing began to progress, God connected the thing that he created with, with the thing that gives it life and sustain it. When he brought forth the grass and the trees and the herbs, what did he speak to? Spoke to the dry ground. Said, let the ground bring forth grass and trees and herbs to produce after its kind. Now, what would happen if you separate grass, trees, herbs from the ground? Anybody know? You got the biology person. They stop growing. That's all that happens. They die. Because the life flow of the tree is contained in the thing from which God brought it forth from. So you see purpose and connection in the way that God has created it. When he spoke to the whales, and when he spoke to create the whales and all those things, what did he speak to? The sea. He told the sea to bring forth the fish and all the living creatures that flow through it. And if you separate those things from their habitat, what does what happen? Death. So God showed connection by the thing that he used to bring forth the thing that he created. And then this, this flow continues to come. The life flow of the cattle and all the creeping thing is what? The earth and the grass and the things that they were brought forth from. In times of famine, what happened to cattle and, and all those things? They die. Because famine cuts off grass, which cuts off the life flow of the things that brought the cattle forth. And when God began to create man, what did he speak to? Let's read it. In verse 26. Genesis 1, 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So when God began to create man, God spoke to who? God. So the origins of the life of man is in where? God, which shows us part of the purpose of man, that we were created to be connected with God. Because that's where we come from. Just like trees come from ground, so it's their purpose to be rooted in the ground. Man comes from God, so it's our purpose to be rooted in him. You cannot understand man, you cannot understand life unless man is connected to God. That's how we were created. God spoke to God to make man. So the thing that produced man, the thing that man is supposed to be connected to to sustain life in man is God himself. So if you want to understand your purpose, if you want to understand who you are, why were you created, the first thing you need to understand is that you were made to be connected to God. And that the life flow of you, the thing that sustains you, the thing that gives you life is God and God himself. Just like tree to ground, Man is to God. We must be connected to him. And you cannot know you unless you are connected to him because there is no you without him. Are we, are we understanding what I'm saying? 
So a part of your, the basic part of your purpose is to be connected to God because God spoke to himself when he made you. And that crowns us with a dignity far superior than any other thing that exists on the planet of this earth. And we have done ourselves a great disservice because we allowed the fools to create our identity for us. And they have trained us and brought us up in the ways that discount the truth of the Bible. So we got these crazy conceptions of ourselves. Actually, we have no conception of ourselves because people have told us that Genesis 1 ain't true. That we flow from just goo. And after a long, long time, people start being around. That accidents happen, monkeys start dying, and then you start existing. And that robs us of our identity when we take that. Because that's not who we are. The earth is not our mother. The earth is not our home. We come from God. This earth was not created to produce us. This earth was created for us. And we're going to get to that in a minute. So when we think about our organs, we can't think about this long, long time of things just coming and then they're happening and then they're happening. And then one day we get here. That's a lie. And that lie being perpetuated has robbed us of our dignity. The suicide rate is greater than the homicide rate. Because people have no hope. And you have people with millions and millions of dollars out there scrambling, lost, depressed, with no identity, with no guidance for life. And I had this thought some years ago, and it messed my mind up. And I, have to, I play with people with it all the time. Is it something that really pushed me to pursue seek God? That's the question. If you were to get on a plane, and the man flying the plane told you, he really don't understand the purpose of planes. That it's too deep for him to comprehend. But it's my job to lead and guide and direct this plane. I don't know how planes are supposed to work. But that they work is all I know. How comfortable would you feel riding on that plane? You wouldn't feel that. You'd be like, man, you're this fool. <laughs> uh, could y'all get somebody else over here? But one amazing thing has happened, we don't think about it too often, is that we are that way. We have got to a point where we are controlling, you, you, you control your life. You make decisions and all that stuff. Done. Yeah, you make, you make a lot of them. And you've been doing it for about 25 years. Just about. How many of those 25 years would you say that you understood the existence of life and what life's supposed to be like and what it is that you're supposed to be doing? How many of them years? Not many of them at all. But yet and still, you're directing life. That's the existence of humanity. That the people who don't understand life is in charge of it. The people who don't understand purpose and direction is in charge of leading and guiding humanity. And that's the problem that we have in our existence. 
So what we need to do in order to live our life rightly is to understand why it is that we're here. Are y'all with me? Point one, you were made and true life exists because we were called forth from God and it's our destiny to be called to be by God. And we're going to come back to this, but watch this. Let make this a little bit deeper. Go to Genesis chapter two. Genesis chapter two. We'll start at verse eight. Talking about this image of God thing. We're going to go back deeper into that a little bit. It says, and the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. Genesis 2 verse 8. And there he put man whom he had formed. Out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight of to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden. And a river went out in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from thence his will parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison. That is it which compasseth the whole land of Hebla. And there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. And there is Bezalem and the Onyx Stone. And the name of the second river is Gahan. The same is that that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hittakel. That is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took man and put him into the garden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of the tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. Now, start. Let's flip. Go back. Start to it. Go to verse 4. Genesis 2, 4. It said, These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into him the, into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul so in this scene we see a detailed and when it comes to the creation of man, another thing I want to point out is when it talked about the creation of every other thing, how much personal contact did God make with his creation? Well, we read in Genesis one. Anybody remember? When God made light, how much personal contact did God make with light? No, it didn't, didn't say nothing about him doing nothing with the light other than him speaking. When God made the ground, how much personal contact did God make with the ground? Don't say nothing about him doing nothing with the ground. When he made beasts, how many times did it say that God came down and formed beasts? Zero. But when he dwells in or or dives in unto the creation of man, it uses a special word that was different from everything that it used in in Genesis chapter 1. It said that God formed man of the dust of the ground. And that word to form means to cut and to craft. It's the same word that they use when they talked about Aaron making an idol or the people chopping down trees and forming an idol. God came down and God formed man. Uh, y- 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 y'all getting into the detail of that. So when God created man, he didn't just speak to let man come forth. God took his time and it said he cut man. He crafted him. He shaped man 
from the dust of the ground. So God was personally involved in the creation of man. So that shows us, and, and it gets deeper into this, the understanding of the relationship between God and man. Your life exists in God because he used himself to create you. But more than just you being inside of God and God being this distant thing that we find our life source in, God is personally involved and connected with the creation of man, which means that God has a personal relationship with you. It is the desire of God to be connected to man. And God has value in you because you were personally crafted by God. Just think about this. I said we live in this commercial world when it comes to buying stuff. Now, when you go to the, to the bulk stores like Walmart and you get a purse it's for my ladies, even the expensive ones, how many of them are as expensive when you go to the little boutiques and the lady tell you that this is handcrafted, specially designed? Which one costs more? The handcrafted, specially designed one. Why does it cost more? It's special. There's a uniqueness to it. And it's not stock. In the sense of somebody took their time and crafted these things. You ain't got to worry about no, no mess up from a machine and it double stitch. And so you can go get it from, from, from whatever little offshoot store because it's one of the irregular ones. Because a person took their time and they threaded every thread. They took their time and they tested every thread. They took their time and they put the zipper on themselves. One no machine doing this. That shows you the interest in the thing. That shows you the specialness of the craft. So that creates more value to it. And the value goes up based on who it was that put it together. Y'all understanding what I'm saying? Because if I take my time to make a purse and I put all my sweat into that thing, I put my little lens on, get down there and do my needle and I try to sell it, y'all ain't going to want to buy it. (laughs) But if they tell you one of these big designers specially made a purse for you, the value of it just go up immediately just because they put the name on it. Sometimes they ain't even got to make it. They just put they they just brand it. Oh, that's good. Put my name on it. And all of a sudden it's worth $3,000. And all it is is a piece of leather. It's some ugly designs. So. <laughs> but the connection of the purpose increases the value because we put some value on this person. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? So if he took the time and made it, it's more valuable. But you were made by who? God. Humanity was specially crafted by God. We're the only thing on this planet that can say that. Can't no monkey say it. Can't no dog say it. Nothing else on this planet can say that God specially crafted me. That my shape, that my form came from the hand of God. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So that puts a value upon us that separate us from all of the creation. We are the supreme thing on this planet. That's dope. That is amazing. That God took time to make man. 
He could have just said, just like he did with everything. Let the dirt bring forth man and let man walk around and be crazy. He could have did that. And people just could have started popping up everywhere. He could, that's the way God could have made it. But for some reason, God saw fit to craft man, to cut man out, to form him himself. And that crowns us with a glory that separates us, that sets us apart from all the rest of creation. Because we flow forth from God, we were crafted by God, and he said we were made in the image of God. That's, that's, that's deep. But watch this. In, in, in this Genesis chapter 2, I'm going sh- to show you something. Well, let's think about this for a minute. What are one of the most repeated commands if you read, especially the first five to six books of the Bible, that he tell the children of Israel not to do. One of the top commandments are the Ten Commandments. Huh? You have no other God and you don't do what? Make no idols. Them the top. And all throughout Deuteronomy, when Moses was getting ready to take the people into the thing, he's telling them, y'all don't be making no idols. God slaughtered about 3,000 other people after he gave the Ten Commandments. Why? Because they made an idol. So the prohibition against idols is a big thing. The whole northern kingdom was taken into captivity because Jeroboam set up an idol in the northern kingdom to keep the people from going back to Judah. And their demise went down very, very quickly. Syrians came in and wiped them out. This whole prohibition against idols is a very big thing. But if you ever pay attention to it, God did what he told the people not to do. I want to say he made man in his image. That word image is the same word that is used in the translated idol. That's deep. So when God said don't make no idols, he's saying don't make no image. The same exact word. So God made us as an idol of God. That's all deep. We are idols of God. People don't usually make that connection because the King James translators separated the words and used different words. So in our mind, they're disconnected. But it's the exact same word that is used for idol, is used for image, because that's what we are. Now, let me show you something. Watch, watch this. Let me show you how the ancient people thought about idols. Because we don't understand this. To us, it's just a little statue that looks cute on the, on the stand that we ain't supposed to have in our house. Go to 1 Samuel. We go in the stores to buy, weave, and all that stuff. They got them little statues up there. <laughs> That's all it is to us. They worship that false god with them little statues up there. <laughs> all right, watch this. You got to see the story. Just put it, put us in the right mindset so we can rightly understand this. First Samuel chapter four. We'll start reading at verse three. It says, and when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout. 
so that the earth rang again. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord was coming to the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God is coming to the camp. And they said, woe unto us, for there have not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? And these are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Now, y'all watch. Y'all, y'all saw what happened now. Now, this is the children of Israel going out to war. They were losing. They were getting their butt whooped. So they went to get the Ark of the Covenant. It's about this time, they had been beginning to separate and disobey God. So things were going down here, and God was punishing them. So they had this great idea. Let's get the ark, because if we got the ark, we're going to win. So when the ark came, everybody started to shout. They got crunk. It was amazing. Like, oh, 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 this is it. It's on now. We finna get it. And in verse 7, watch what the Philistines say. It show you how they thought about idols. Because to the Philistines, the ark of the covenant was just another idol. They didn't understand. It says, and the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God is coming to the camp. These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Verse 7 and 8. So in the mind of the Philistines, the idol itself was God. It bared the spirit of God. And if you read in, in the next chapter, when they put the Ark of the Covenant in their temple under their God, in their mind, they was putting Yahweh under Dagon. And when they woke up and Dagon's head was chopped off and knocked down, they said Yahweh has defeated our God. All it was was a little statue, a piece of wood. But in their mind, with that wood being knocked over, their God has been defeated. Because in the mind of the ancient people who worship false gods, idols were carriers of the spirit of their God. In ancient Mesopotamia, there's Babylon and all that area, there's this ritual they used to do. Where they, they crafted an idol and they carved it, they cut it. One, then they do stupid stuff. They go hide the tools and throw it in the river. Like, ain't nobody see y'all cutting that thing. <laughs> and then they make the, the artisan of it make his confession. I have not created this. That's whole foolishness. But they go through this whole ritual. They call it the mouthwashing ritual. Where they purify this idol and they have these incantations that they say. And the whole purpose of the ceremony is to commission the God to enter into the idol. And if they complete the ceremony and everything going to plan, in their mind, the spirit of God now dwells inside this idol. So when I put this in the temple, this becomes the temple of God because the spirit of God is in it. So in the minds of the ancient people, idols bear the spirit of the God whom they worship. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? So when we look at the the congruency between the thing that God made and the the unity of the word, what God was speaking, he's trying to teach us something, I believe. So that when God said he made man in his image, after his likeness, he made man to be an idol of God. And if we truly take the pure ancient picture of that, that means he made man to be a barrier of the spirit of God. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? And if you read in Genesis chapter 2, you will see some formation of this. Because it said he carved man, formed him, then he breathed into him the spirit of life or the breath of life. So that the only man way man can truly be man is if man be a carrier of the breath or the spirit of God. That's what it means for us to be 
in the image of God, for us to be the idol of God. We supposed to be barriers or carriers of the spirit of God. Us being filled with the spirit is us truly being man. Y'all understand what I'm saying? So you cannot be man. You cannot fulfill destiny unless you are a barrier of the spirit of God. That's who we are. And if you watch the whole picture unfold, God placed this image, this idol that he created. He breathed his breath into him and he placed him in the garden. Then he begins to use certain type of language. He said the man's supposed to keep the garden and address it. That's deep. Because if you read in the book of Leviticus, the job of the Levites was to keep the temple. The same exact word. So in the mind of God, when he made man, crowned him with that glory, he breathed within him in the spirit of life. He placed him in the temple of God. And it became the purpose of man to keep and to extend the temple. So the very place of the presence of God, God put man in the midst of it. And it was man's job to keep that, to protect that and to extend it. Y'all understand what I'm saying? That's your destiny as a human being. So I need you to understand this. Your life is connected to God. You cannot be you unless you are with God. Separation from God is death. But your purpose is to be the image of God. And you cannot truly be an image of God unless you are filled with the spirit of God. Because one true image is a possessor of the spirit. It creates the temple of God. So you are you if you are where God dwells. And you cannot be you unless you have the spirit of God in you. So there is no purpose. There is no meaning to your life until your life is filled with the spirit of God. Man cannot be man unless man is a possessor of the spirit of God. And the only way to truly be man is to allow God to be God in you. Because we were made as idols of God. We were made as the image of God. We was made to be possessors of the very spirit of God. That's our destiny as a human being. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? So there's a dignity that is placed upon us because of our connection and our purpose. And our purpose is to be connected to God and our purpose is to be the habitation of God. That's, that, that, that's what we got to do. That's what we're supposed to be. That's your destiny as a human being. But he also used a second coin and he flips those words are interchangeable. He says the image and the likeness. The likeness and the image. Another use of that word image is something that represents. When the people came to tempt Jesus, and they told him, should we pay taxes? Jesus said, whose image is on it? What do you mean by who little faces is it on that coin? And they said Caesar. So we said give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but give to God the things that belong to God. And then in that connection, he made a connection between the image or the superscription on a coin and the image of the image of God that you were created in and you. So just like that coin represents Caesar, the image of God upon you represents God. So it is part of your destiny to be a representation of God here on this planet. We should know who God is by knowing you. Just like little bit of kids can walk in Washington and they can point out to you George Washington over and over again. How in the world can they do that? They ain't never seen. 
because they've seen many representations of him. They have seen images of him over and over in cartoons, at school, in books, so on and so forth, so that when they walk down the street, they can say, that's George Washington. Because the image gives some representation of who he is, what he is like. And we are supposed to be the image of God. So connected to that image is a form of representation. So not only are we are supposed to be carriers of God as the idol of God, but as the image and likeness of God, we're supposed to be a representation of him. And we're going to get deeper into that as we go forward. But I just want to put out these bullet points of the dignity that we have been crowned in. We have been given dignity because we're connected with God. We've been given dignity because it's our purpose to house God. And we've been given dignity because we're supposed to represent God. Are you, you understanding what I'm saying? And if you take Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, it gives us two things when it comes to purpose and function. And we're going to begin to transition from here. Two things. In Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, he said, let us make man in our likeness and our image and let him have dominion. Well, I told you, everything that's created, God gives it a function. So let him have dominion. That means let him rule. So man supposed to be the image of God and is supposed to rule. That's deep. So in that moment, he is crowning you with a purpose. In that moment, he is crowning you with destiny. In that moment, he is crowning you. <laughs> Y'all don't get to do it. Because Christ, as the Messiah, prophet, priest, and king, he is the true image of God. Us at creation, crowned, given dominion, given rule, meaning that he crowns us as kings. So you are a king just because of the fact that you are created in the image of God. You have rule, you have power, you have dominion. Just because you wanted this genesis, this race that we call man. So a part of your function is to rule, to have dominion. Another part is in Genesis chapter 2 when he says, let him keep the garden and to replenish it. So the replenishing, God, I just want to get you this picture. God made one little garden eastward in Eden. Now we got this picture that God made this whole entire thing called Eden, which was this beautiful garden that God created. That ain't what the Bible said. He said he planted a garden eastward in Eden. So if you go to Eden and you go on the east side, God had a garden now. And that's where he put man at. Eden wasn't no full city. There was a whole garden of itself. It's just one little side. Eastward in Eden, God put a garden there and he put man there. Man was supposed to protect that garden and man was supposed to replenish or multiply that garden. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So we're supposed to take the one little thing that God made, fill with the presence of God and extend it. And not only extend it, but protect it. Protect it and extend it. Keep it replenish it, multiply. So at some point, it was supposed to have been a garden on the west side of Eden. And the north side, and the south side, all of them were supposed to have a garden. And everything that came after Eden was supposed to be what? A garden. And who was supposed to make it that way? Man. Because man is crowned not only as a king with dominion and rule, but we're crowned as priest of the Most High God. This is a part of our destiny innate in our creation. You're supposed to be king and priest. That's who you are because that's the way God created you. And if you understand it, if you truly see the picture, if you track salvation all the way through the connections we're going to try to make, 
If you make it all the way to Peter, what does he tell us? That we're peculiar people or what? Royal your priesthood. That's who we are. Is that something new that God made? Like now we were all priesthood. Now we got it better. No, God is restoring what he originally created because we were given dominion and we were called a commission to keep and extend the guard. Same thing the priest supposed to do. The priest supposed to watch. If you study the Old Testament, the priest, their whole job was the tabernacle. They protected it. They cleansed it. They kept it holy. They maintained all the standards of it. And they were supposed to take what God put forth on them and extend it to the people. That's what their job. We are priests. So that means that the sanctity and the purity of the worship and the, and, the, and the experience of being connected with God, we're supposed to take that. We're supposed to keep it. We're supposed to protect it. We're supposed to love it, not allow it to be defiled. But we're also supposed to multiply it. Because that's intrinsic in our creation. So let's, let's, let's make a couple connections in this for a minute. We'll drive it home. We're going to go a little deeper. But now, as you think about yourself, and if you truly get a hold of this and understand this, what does this tell you about you? Hmm. You got function and you got meaning purely because you were created. You got function, meaning purpose, something to do. And you got meaning, which is value, dignity, purely because you were created. So let's just say you don't have the job like your cousin them got. That life ain't quite as been as kind to you. That you made some dumb decisions that put you in a bad spot. Does that devalue you? No. Because your value does not come from anything external to you. Your true value comes from how you were created. You got a job just because you were made. You got dignity just because you were created. So no matter what goes on in this world, nothing can detract from the value that you have within you because your value don't come from nothing in this world. You got dignity just because you were created. So if all you got to do is wash dishes at McDonald's, you can wash dishes at McDonald's with a joy and a purpose in your heart. Because this don't make you. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And what we have allowed to happen is that the world, it messed our mind up. And it placed values, false values, and false goals for us to attain to while allowing us to forsake the true worth that we have. So we're looking everywhere else to find worth. We're looking at our job. We're looking at our, our address. We're looking at the car that we drive, the clothes that we got on. We're looking at the people that we associate with. And all these things are supposed to bring us value. Are supposed to make us somebody. Are supposed to make us important when none of that has anything to do with who you are. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And when we think about great people, we name people who did stuff. That's cool. And what we end up creating is a hierarchy. And the thing that grieves me the most is that we allowed that to creep into the church. Is that we got this bishop, then we got his people, then we got the prayer team and all them people, then the praise and worship team and them people, then all the rest of the members in the pew. And these people are more valuable than these people because these people are got more value and more worth and they're more special than the people way down here. 
that's the general way we think. We don't say that, but that's how we treat it. Because how often have you seen and you going into a church where the man of God began to block somebody because they're trying to get too close to Chelsea? Like, hold up, what you doing? What you trying to do? <laughs> you don't know. Can everybody, anybody just walk? But anybody can walk up on her in church. But can't anybody just walk up on the bishop? Because the bishop is more important than her. That's the way we think. And then when we rank ourselves spiritually, we don't believe that we got the same worth because we ain't doing what they doing. And so we create this moment of striving and discontentment where church and and Christianity becomes a drudgery because we're never fulfilled and we never will be fulfilled because the thing is set it up for the people at the top to stay at the top and us at the bottom to stay at the bottom. Because it won't be no top if we was no bottom. If everybody got to the top, the top wouldn't be special. You understand what I'm saying? So you always going to be discontent if your value or your understanding of your worth in the eyes of God is connected to this hierarchy that we got in church. If you, I lay my hands on 10 people and they fell down. So I'm getting up. <laughs> I'm saying I'm moving up and no, that, that's not who you are. Your value and your worth comes from your creation. That's what crowns you with dignity. So that's the simple fact that you was able to take a breath once you came out your mother's womb gave you a value greater than any other thing that's on this planet. You got worth. You got dignity. All the way to the point that if we read it in, in Genesis 9, God made this crazy statement. He said that any man that shed man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Because man was created in the image of God. That's deep. So God began to put a value on man. And, and, and check this. I'm going to take it to a place most people never thought about. And I think about this thing. Any man that shed man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed because man was created in the image of God. I think that's Genesis 9, 6. So what God is saying is your life is worth life. That's, that's the value of you. And even in James, he repeat this thing. He said, we can't bless God and curse man who was created after the similitude of God. So in the James, if, in the mind of James, the way you view God and the way you view man can't be in contradiction because man was created after the image of God. So that puts a value on you. And anything that kills and destroys man in the eyes of God, must be destroyed. Because your value is life. And then let's think about this for a minute. And we, we got this culture, which is really ain't true. Maybe it was true at one point in time. where we see these little things with little girls and we say, oh, she just don't know her worth. And that's why she out there sleeping with everybody because she didn't have a daddy. In some cases, that may be true. But, 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 but watch this. And, and, and especially in, the, in, in the, the movement in the early 2000s, late 90s, in, in the uh, purity movement that went through the church. Everybody had purity ceremonies and purity rings, and they tell you your, your worth and all this type of stuff, and your worth is commitment. And in a ring, that's not your worth. Because let, let's see what God was willing to do when he desired to have a relationship with you. Because God put value on man. 
Now, God wanted to purchase to himself some people. That's what God wanted to do. He wanted to buy some folk. And to purchase these folks, he had to find the right price to buy them. What is the value of a man? So what God decided to do to buy some people was to put God in the flesh and kill him. And it is only through death that God figured that he got the right price to purchase the life. Because life is so valuable that life is the only thing that's worth it. Are you understanding what I'm saying? That the value of you is life. There's nothing on this earth that has the right to buy your heart, to buy your affection, to buy anything that brings death or hurt, destruction to you because you are created in the image of God. So that means God is the only thing that has the right to purchase you. And just think about it. God didn't raise up a righteous servant to purchase you. God didn't send forth the Enoch or Elijah or Daniel to say this is going to be my redeemer for mankind. God sent forth himself crowned with glory and honor. Step down on his throne because the losing of glory itself is the only value for man because you were crowned to be God. Are you understanding what I'm saying? That's your value. So let's take this thing a little step farther. If the value of you is life, the life of God, the most high, and the thing that brings death to you is supposed to be destroyed. All right, let's think about it now. God said, if somebody kill man, by man shall his blood be shed because man was created in the image of God. Establishing the principle. Anything that brings death to man is supposed to be destroyed. Anything that brings death to man needs to be destroyed because it's the image of God. So anything that destroys the image of God must be destroyed. Now let's just say I find within myself some sin and some foolishness. Does that destroy the image of God? Yeah. Let's just say I find within myself discontentment and the lack of joy. Does that bring down the image of God? There's a real enemy out here on this real planet trying to destroy some real people. But none, you need to understand something. Anything that destroys the image of God must be what? Destroyed. And God is in the business of repurchasing or redeeming his image. So if there's in you anything that brings death, destruction to you, know and understand that it's the purpose of God and it's the principle of God that that thing must be destroyed. So I need to understand in myself that anytime I find anything in me that creates within me a separation from the image and the purpose that I was created again, I have a hope that the God of creation, the very God who gave his life to redeem me, is on a mission to destroy it. That's some great stuff. So I should never be content with anything in me that causes me to not be what God created me to be because I need to know anything that destroys the image of God, God wants it to be destroyed. And God is the one that has recreated me. God is the one that's reshaping me. God is the one that's inside of me, making me what he created me to be. So for everything inside of me that's not like him, that is not an expression of his thing that he created, that does not crown me with dignity, that does not allow me to reign and rule, that does not allow me to extend the kingdom of God, God is in the business of getting rid of it. I don't care how long it's been in your family. I don't care how many of your cousins, nieces, nephews, uncles, and granddaddy, granddaddy, papa, all that stuff that was addicted to drugs, that was selling 
uh, moonshine or whatever else going on. It don't have to be in you. If every girl in your family got pregnant before they were supposed to, that don't mean you got to. That lust don't have to consume you because God is in the business of destroying the things that destroy his image. Are, are you with me? That's deep. Because God has crowned us with such great dignity. And that dignity comes just from the simple fact that we were born. That's it. You got that dignity just by being human. There's no striving for it. God made you that way. So our only goal is to get back to our original source, which is the God. Our only goal is surrender and allow God to tabernacle within us till we can be the temple of the almighty God so that we can be filled with the spirit of God. And we need to understand that death comes to everything that destroys the image of God. Are y'all with me? Do anybody got any questions? This may be off the subject, but it may be on the subject. Okay. I'm going to have to listen to this by 315. What is exactly what is baptism? Exactly what is baptism? Baptism, I'll give you the, the easy answer first. Baptism is a right that we have as Christians that's connected, one, to cleansing and purification, but it's also as an expression of our death and our union with Christ in death and our rising to the newness of life. That answer your question a little bit. I need to expound. So baptism is a right. It's something that God has left for us that is connected with cleansing. So when John baptized, he said, be baptized for the remission or the cleansing or the washing away of your sins. Every time God redeems a people, there's a washing that goes forth. So there's connection and cleansing that is connected with salvation and redemption and purification. So baptism is a rite of cleansing. It's a rite of purification that we participate in, in the hands of God. But it is also a picture, a symbol of our death, our union with Christ in death and our rising with him in the newness of life. Like when Jesus was baptized, he said, I got to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So in the mind of Jesus, there was some righteous act taking place in submitting to the act of baptism. So there's this righteousness. There's something that Christians are supposed to do, but it's also a picture or a symbol of what has truly taken place in the heart or the reality or the life of a Christian. So when we go down, we're dying with them. When we come up, we're rising in the newness of life. And in Mark, uh, it was talking about like different types of baptism. Like it was saying baptism of repentance, then of the water, and then of the Holy Spirit. How can you be like, why was it, why was it, why did they use the term baptism like of repentance and of the Holy Spirit? Because it was showing the contrast between John's baptism and the baptism that was going to come. So John baptism was a baptism of repentance. He was calling the people back to God, preparing the way for the Messiah. So his message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is coming. The Lord is coming back. Everybody need to get ready. So the people that came out to John were showing an act of repentance, of turning from their old ways and turning to this new life, being prepared, prepped, purified for the coming of the King Messiah. But he said, my, my, my baptism is cool. But there's going to come a baptism after me that's greater than the one I'm giving you. 
And this baptism is a baptism of the spirit. So just like I immerse you in water, the one coming after me is going to immerse you in the spirit of God. So that's the difference between the two baptisms. So we're covered in water for the purification, but we're also sanctified by being covered in the spirit of God. So we're showing the parallel between the two, but the superior one being the spirit of baptism in the spirit. Okay. Two more along those lines. Um, is baptism essential to salvation? It depends on what you mean by that word essential. If you mean essential as in the sense of it is impossible to be saved without being baptized, scripturally we don't see that. If you mean essential as in is it a part of salvation, it is something that all saved people do. Go ahead. I guess I can clarify what I'm saying. Is it kind of like not comparing it to like Islam or something, but it's like, like for example, like, you know, they have certain things like this is what you're supposed to do with the Muslim, like the five pillars of faith or whatever. But it's like one of them where you have to do such and such, and this is what you, everyone has to do every day. Well, and then it's another one, like I think going to Mecca, it's like something that is suggested that you do, but it's like no herd to do it. You just do it when you can. Some kind of like that. It's baptism like that. So that is like, is, is it like when as soon as you get saved, you need to get baptized? Is it like that important? I guess how important is it? Or is it like um, just whenever you can, you just do it at some point before you die? The picture we see, because we don't have clear-cut teaching on the superiority of baptism to other rites. But the picture that we see is everybody that got saved immediately wanted to be baptized. As you take the Ethiopian eunuch, once he got an understanding of who Messiah was and what Isaiah was truly talking about, it was his response. Who going to hold water? I mean, we need to find some water so I can get baptized. So there's a draw and there's a pull that when the, when people of God are filled with the spirit of God and been renewed by God, there's a longing to be baptized. So in in that sense, it is essential because it is a, it's an act of righteousness that we partake in. But if you mean that people who get saved and immediately die, that their salvation is incomplete, they're less of a righteous person because they didn't do baptism, we can't say that because scripturally we don't see it put forth that way. But everybody who gets saved should be baptized as soon as they can be baptized. But we don't see no timeline put on it like your salvation going to expire if you don't get baptized within 14 days. Uh, you got a fortnight to be baptized. <laughs> gonna, your salvation, you'll have to do it again. All right, which also leads me to if someone was baptized, let's say, as a child or like a young lady, they were saved and they they were baptized. And then um, they let's say they backslid, but then they rededicated their life to Christ and they also need to be rebaptized. To put the point need to be, I can't truly say so because scripture don't say it. So I don't want to go too far beyond where scripture goes. But baptism is a response of faith. So if you're saying that I was not in faith before, I thought, and like I said, all this confusion comes from church and tradition. Because in the early years, church was connected to citizenship. So a lot of people were baptized just because they were born to a certain family or born in a certain region. So that created a whole bunch of confusion on baptism. And even nowadays with our 
easy salvationism. We, we're so eager to convince people that they're saved. That creates a lot of confusion. So every time somebody repeat, lift up their hand and repeat after the preacher that we crown them with eternal security forever. And so it creates a lot of confusion. But baptism is a response of faith. And what generally happens, I can speak on experiences. One time people get baptized in ignorance. I get baptized in living a life of foolishness. Once the Holy Spirit truly come upon their heart, they usually get convicted and want to get baptized again. And it's just something that God compels them to do. But is it necessary? I can't say scripturally that is necessary because we don't see that problem in the scripture. So we don't have clear cut teaching on it to be dogmatic about it. Anybody else? This is the question that I have. Uh, usually in my prayer, I ask God what my purpose are and what is it that he wants me to do. Mm-hmm. And how can I get that revealed? You know, I'm, every day I bring it up. But, um, how can I get that revealed, what my purpose are and what he needs me to do? That's deep, and we were going to try to go there. But in a quick way. The thing that God has really done with me is to simplify it because we usually connect purpose with something big and way out there that we miss the things that God has right in front of our hands. If you pay attention to the Bible and the scriptures and the people that God chose and used, generally those people were doing whatever they was, where they was, and God began to either birth passion within them or he called them from it. So like you take the example of, let's say Moses. Moses was just living in the back of the mountain, raising his children and his family, doing whatever Jethro had him to do. And in continuation of that, God began, God came to him and called him to something else. And so he entered into a greater purpose because he was available to God because he was just doing his thing. And that's where God met him at. And God called him out to something different. And the same thing happened in the life of David. David was being faithful, taking care of his sheep. And it actually, if you watch the pattern of his life, and he, as he tells his story before he fight with Goliath, all of those things happened from David just being there and being David. So David conquered Goliath and, and became one of the biggest stories in the history of the Bible because he was just with being a little brother doing what his dad had told him to do. And in doing that, passion and devotion to God he had, he took opportunities to express that. Cause why did he defeat Goliath? Because he was going to take his brother some food and he realized some people were speaking against his God and he stood up. Like, you ain't even be talking about my God. It wasn't no big revelation where God told, oh, I'm gonna have you, you're gonna defeat a giant. No, he was just being a boy and just living life and God puts him in a place that being what he is and doing what he do, that the passion and everything that God put in him, he had an opportunity to express it. So it's in moments like that that people get called and, and pushed into purpose. And Paul makes the statement, and he gives principle in 1 Corinthians 7. He said, be content in the calling wherewith you are called. So if you're called as a bond man, be Christ's free man. If you're called as a free man, be Christ's slave. And the principle he's putting in is take what you are, what you have, what God has given you, and glorify God in that. And when God gives opportunity for something else, then you move. So like I, the way God put it to me, I, I see my purpose in the names that I got. I'm daddy to some people. I'm a husband to somebody else. 
I'm a son to other people. And so that's how I find my purpose. So I want to do that and be as faithful in that as I can. And as God begins to expand that, I want to be open and ready for that. But I don't want you don't want to forsake the things that God has given you looking for something else. If you understand what I'm saying. So generally, our purpose is where God has placed us and the things that he put in our hands and us just being who we are in those places and maximizing what God has given us in those places, in those tools, with those passions. And sometimes God begins to birth more in you. You want to see more. You want to do more. And you he opens up the door from that. And sometimes God just completely changed the script and he called you to something else. But if you watch the people who God uses, generally one of those two passions. Like when Paul on his missionary journeys, he got called to go to the Gentiles. That's all he got. So each time he went somewhere, he didn't pray like, God, do you want me to talk to the Thessalonians? God, do you want me to talk to the people of Father? I mean, or the Philippians? No, he just was going. God gave him this one big call. You call to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And even got times where it said Paul was a saying to go somewhere, but the spirit forbade him. So he just turned and go the other way. But we complicate it because we think we have to ask God every little thing. Now, God has crowned us and he's giving you wisdom. He's giving you tools and he's giving you responsibilities so you can work where you are. And as you begin to be faithful in those things, God will unfold greater things to you. Like he called Abraham to go to the land of Canaan. He didn't tell him what he was going to do. He said, you go there. Like, what's my purpose for going? And you go. <laughs> and as he began to go, purpose, vision, things began to unfold greater and greater. But the original call was just to go. And all he had to do was there was be in the land and trust God. That helps a little bit. Yes, we are. Okay. It seems to me like there's been levels from the beginning of Christianity mm-hmm. about how it talks about in Acts how no man dared join himself to the apostles mm-hmm. or that the apostles said, should we stop preaching the gospel to wait on tables? Mm-hmm. Um, tells us to covet the greater gifts. And, and it also mentions about first, second, third of the different, I don't know what they're called, um, the teacher, okay. um, prophet, that thing. So my question is, how do you work within that structure to not devalue yourself? Because it already seems like it's inherently built in that there's going to be some that are greater than others. And Paul tells us that in what is First Corinthians 12, and the way he crafts it is he says that there are vessels that seems to have more honor than others. Like I said, you got the external and the internal. But some seem to have more value than others, but they all are part of the same body. So that that differentiation that we see in what we will say value is not a differentiation in value, but a differentiation in operation. So one way to put in it is like your boss is not more important than you, but there's a level of quote unquote importance that they have by being the boss. But when you all boil it down, that they're persons just like you're a person. That they, they put their pants on just like you put their pants on. But the calling that they have in that, they have more responsibility, which allows them to seem to have more importance. But they couldn't do their job without you. <laughs> and that's why you're there. 
And that's why they have to ask you, because especially if you got a sorry one, they don't even know what's going on unless you tell them. <laughs> so that, 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 that seam of import comes from responsibility, not from that true value. If you get what I'm saying, because Peter even made the statement that we are all of like precious faith like you. So the way he put it is y'all just like us. So he had a job to do. That was different, but his job didn't make him better. If you get what I'm saying. So when they're saying we shouldn't leave the table, I mean, we shouldn't leave the preaching of the word to wait on tables because he had another job to do. But does that mean the people who are waiting on tables is less than them? No, that's not what he's saying. They're just doing a different role. So we need to do this. So we got to be over here. So we need to find somebody else to do this. Now, we don't need to find nobody lesser. Because when you look at their descriptions of the people they look to, to find the weight on the table, they say a man full of the Holy Ghost working in miracles and power. They're doing the same thing we're doing. <laughs> so if you just look at the description of the person he's the same type of people we are and we need them to wait on tape it's just that they're doing a different job and so when we when we look at what we call on different levels it ain't no different levels it's just different positions within the same body like I said your heart seems to have more value than your feet it does it's very important it's doing a pretty big job but your feet is very important too and things can go wrong with your feet that can mess up your heart. <laughs> because it's one in the same body is serving the one in the same function. So you can't elevate one part over the other part. The difference is, is in roles, in dignity. I mean, not in dignity. If, if that, that makes sense. Any other questions? In Genesis one twenty six, was that the first indication of the Trinity? Was that the first indication of the Trinity? When it said, let us make man in our likeness and our image? Yes, your father likes to think so because it follows it up with a singular verb of doing the action, but it used a plural. And also, it refers to him as being made in the image of God. And nowhere else we see any connection to any other thing being in that image. So... Some people will tell you it's just a, what they call a majestic plural, but we don't see that in anywhere in literature until England. Uh, majestic plural, when they talk about a king speaking of we as in the throne itself. Like, so we have established this rule in this place, in this place. And all we're talking about is me as being the king. So they call that a majestic plural. But biblically and in ancient literature, we really don't see that. And some people tell you it's the divine council, but that's a whole nother subject we'll delve into. But I think it's just God speaking to himself in the plurality of God because it makes sense with the rest of scripture. Any other questions? That's it. They all yours, Apostle.